So persecution, right, happens. We see the reality of that in the video. We know the reality of that in um, our world. But uh, we and we've seen that reality in, in Acts chapter one through eight. But the question that I want to pose to us today is this: What empowers people to withstand the persecution that they face? So that family in Vietnam, as their house is torn down, that church in China, as it's uh, destroyed, the reality of that. Uh, worship service that's disrupted by military and police. How do those folks uh, withstand the persecution that they face? Well, we saw last week that Stephen was a man filled with the Spirit, with wisdom, with power, with grace, and he stood under the outpouring of God and therefore was used by God. How does How do people withstand the persecution that they face? Well, they stand under the outpouring of God to be used by God, even as Stephen was. But in that power, we always see what? Pushback. In the conflict, we always see growth. And as we pick up our story this morning, Stephen has been unjustly arrested based upon lies from dishonest men, and he now stands trial for these charges. And this week we have the privilege of hearing the message of Stephen, by the way, the longest message in the book of Acts, right? Uh, and, and see the example of Stephen in the midst of that persecution. So if you have your Bibles this morning, which I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 7. If you have it on your electronic devices, that's fantastic. Uh, it is a very long text, 60 verses, in fact. We're going to cover the entire chapter of Acts 7. So I'm not going to read it all before we start, but we'll read it as we go. So you're turning to Acts chapter 7 as you do so. I want to remind you where we're at, right? Stephen has uh, this one who has served the widows of Jerusalem, the, the Greek widows of Jerusalem, a servant of God, is also a spokesman of God. And in being a spokesman of God, his words have been turned. He's heard lies told about him, and he now finds himself in front of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and he's being accused of all kinds of interesting things. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, we kind of jump back into the story, and the high priest, who's in charge of everything that's happening, ask Stephen, are these things so? Is what these people are saying about you, is this true? And and the charges, you have to understand at the very core of the charges, is the reality is uh, questioning Jesus as the Messiah, questioning Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, uh, that questioning the reality of, of who Jesus is. So now we're going to hear Stephen's response. And many of you wish this morning that he would have just said, no, they're not true. These people are telling lies about me. That would have been a much shorter sermon today, right? But he didn't. Stephen, out of compassion and in grace and with the power of God, gives a very long, historical, beautiful answer to this simple question. He goes, are these things so? And Stephen goes, well, let me tell you something, right? And he begins to preach. And he begins where he knows, listen, he begins where he knows the council will agree. So we're going to walk through the sermon. Here we go. First, he talks about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Everybody knew the song, right? Many sons had. So everybody knew the reality that this is the one whom is the very beginning of this Jewish nation. So this is where Stephen starts. He goes, brothers and fathers, this is verse 2. 
Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offsprings after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Good news, right? Woo-hoo. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now let me explain why Stephen starts with Abraham. What we'll see throughout this uh, whole historical sermon is the fact that Stephen is saying to the council that God's ways are always the right ways. God's ways are always the right ways. And he begins with Abraham. Abraham had built himself a very nice life in the land of the Chaldeans, the land of Ur, as we read about in Genesis. And In the midst of this, not even being a follower of God, God speaks to Abraham and calls him out. That should, uh, for those of you who've been around covenant now for the last couple of years, should mean something. That we are a called out people. Abraham was a called out person, right, of God. He was called from the land in which he had had multitudes of farms, multitudes of, uh, of, of, of relatives, and all kinds of family. Everything was comfy, cool, and wonderful in the land of Ur. And God says to him, no, 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 comfy isn't my way. (laughs) So you're going to follow my way. You're going to leave her. And so he does. And he goes to Haran and his father becomes sick and they stay in Haran for a while. And after his father dies, I love the language here in this text, in Stephen's sermon, he says, God removed them from Haran. That, That tells me, listen, I was a little comfy in Chaldea. I was a little comfy in Ur. I moved to Haran. I became comfy again and probably would have stayed there. But God removed me. He picked him up and he took him. He called him out and he empowered him to go. And so he goes to this promised land, a land that he didn't even own a foot of. Did you hear that? He didn't own any of it. He was a foreigner in a foreign land. But in spite, in spite of his traditions, in spite of the things that seemed comfortable, Abraham listened. The covenant of circumcision was not for the comfort of God's people, but they listened. Abraham went obediently to a land that he did not own, and he did so, listen, only on the promise of God that God said, I'm going to build you a people. I'm going to give you this land. Listen, here it is. God said, not your way, but my way. And Abraham obeyed. And the council at this point, because they were Presbyterian, gave a nod. (laughs) 
Those were the advanced Presbyterians. They gave him an odd. Right? I, I get you. So Stephen kept on going. And he moves to Joseph, starting in verse 9. Okay, you're with me in Abraham. Let me tell you about Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, uh, so the other tribes of Israel, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But Stephen said God was with him. And he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. By the time Joseph is born, his father Jacob had made wealth for himself in the land that God gave his grandfather Abraham. So we've skipped a couple generations, right? So things have developed. The people of God are established in the promised land. Twelve tribes, twelve sons, they're running the thing well. And then this last son comes. His name is Joseph. Ugh. He's a little arrogant. Kept saying he had these dreams, right? That he was better than all the other brothers. Brothers don't take well to that, right? And so, indeed, long story short, the story is amazing back in the book of Genesis, but long story short is that Joseph's brothers trick him uh, and they end up selling him into slavery and he's taken to Egypt. His father, believing that he is dead. Joseph was moved from what was familiar, moved from the traditions of his day to a place that he had not built. But God caused Joseph as a slave in a foreign land to find favor with his king, Pharaoh. And God used for good what man intended for evil, providing a way through Joseph in Egypt to provide for the nation of Israel in a time of famine. And God says to Joseph, not your way, but my way. And Joseph obeys. And the council as Stephen preaches, becomes a bit more Pentecostal. Yeah, I need help from this corner back here. Right? So, let's get too carried away. All they got to was, mm-hmm. Right? So, the nod continued, and the council's going, mm-hmm. No Abraham. No Joseph. Stephen, you are right on. So, he continued. And he moves to the big guy, Moses, the very guy that he is accused of blaspheming. And he begins to read and or to preach in, in verse 17. Okay, you're with me. I love it. I mean, so when preachers see you nodding, going, mm-hmm, they're going, yeah. All right. So here he goes. But at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. It was at this time Moses was born. 
And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Ha! This is great. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the Jews, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when 40 years had passed there in Midian, an angel appeared to him, get this, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 more years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. So catch me, right? Council's going, mm-hmm. And here we go to Moses. Moses significantly builds the crescendo. There's a crescendo building. It's a great musical term, right? That crescendo is that if you start soft, you get louder, 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 louder. We feel Stephen's, I mean, you think I get excited. Stephen in front of the council is getting excited. Then Abraham is going, "Uh uh-huh. Yes, Joseph, yeah. Moses, get it, right? This is the guy. I mean, this is the man. This is the one whom we would follow anywhere, right? He was a big-time dude in the midst of these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders. Why? Because as a baby, he's taken from the comfort of his mother to be raised by the enemy Egyptians. And then at the age of 40, he tries to return to his people, but he gets rejected. So he flees to a different country, to Midian. He makes a home there, has a family, only to hear God say, go back and be the Redeemer. Be the one that delivers your people out of a burning bush. So he leaves. That which he has built to do what God is building. He delivers the people. He crosses the Red Sea. He stands before God to receive the commandments of God on behalf of the people. And God says to Moses, listen, on several accounts, not your way, Moses, but my way. And Moses obeys. Now the council's in a frenzy. Right? Mm-hmm. And maybe even, are you ready? 
Amen, brother. Right? They, they are good. glory, honor. Man, this is good stuff. Stephen, I think for a moment they forgot the guy was on trial. Yes, you're speaking our language. Abraham, Joseph, Moses. And Stephen goes, okay, hang on. Right? We got another one. Let me reflect for you on a dark day in Israel's history. He has them where he wants them, right? And here's verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him. Wait, 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 wait. what you say? No, it's, 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 remember the theme, Stephen? It's not, not your way, but God's way, and they obey. That's it. That's, that's what, and he goes, no, listen. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing, listen, in the works of whose hands? Of their hands. I think it got silent in the council at that moment. I don't know how much they got about where Stephen was going, but Stephen knew where he was going. There's Abraham. Yeah, I get it. Joseph, I get it. Moses, man, we would have followed him anywhere. But our fathers refused to obey him. The story is a great one in the book of Exodus where Moses has gone too long meeting with God and the people become impatient. And instead of not our way, but God's way and obeying, they go, ah, where is God? And instead of obeying, they say, no way. In, in fact, uh, let's take matters into our own hands. God obviously has left us. Moses, God only knows where he is. And so let's get the gold. Aaron, gather all the gold. Let's make a golden calf. And let's dance around that golden calf. Uh, an image made by our hands. The people of God knew God's way, but decide instead to sing a little Sinatra and have it their way. Stephen doesn't stop. In the midst of the silence, he then turns to the temple, the very thing that his arrest was centered on. God turned away, gave them over to worship the host of heaven, verse 42, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? This is from Amos. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers, they had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon. It was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, 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 big underscore it, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophets say. 
Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And the silence grows deeper in the council. Why? Because they had made the temple their God. And when Jesus said something about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days, they were distracted from the one who was the Messiah to the very thing of thinking that their idol was to be broken down. But here Stephen goes, no, listen. Listen, God was gracious to you all. God was gracious to our people. Even in our disobedience, he found favor. He, he, he was present in the tabernacle, the tabernacle that traveled with us, that very tabernacle that went with Joshua into Jericho and went into the promised land and established the promised land afresh and anew, so much so that we reigned in that promised land and Solomon was able to build a permanent home, a temple. But listen, that temple was not to be worshipped. Rather, the God of the temple was to be worshipped. And now you've gotten it all wrong. The crescendo of Stephen's sermon is loud, but the council is now silent. They hear in Stephen's words an accusation that they have not fallen into the heritage of those who have followed God's way, but rather have made their own way. Stephen implies that God had sent Jesus to rescue his people, and these Jews have rejected him in favor of their own traditions. They were so focused on that built with human hands that they missed that which was sent by God. And so here comes the end of his sermon. Listen, not with an angry heart. Not with a judgmental heart. But with a broken heart. For his people, Stephen says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> in fact, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, which, by the way, you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. You know, Stephen saying, going, you hear, you, you nod your head, you shout amen, and you do not know that you condemn yourself. Because in killing Jesus, you have protected your comforts, the traditions that you have built, and you've tried to destroy that which God is doing. Stephen says, you are so unlike Abraham, Joseph, and even Moses, and so like those who formed the golden calf. Stephen stands before the council, and he says, here's the truth. You've become stiff-necked, uncircumcised, resisting the Holy Spirit, and you have killed the righteous one, the promised Messiah. God's way has not fit your way, so you have said, no way. (laughs) 
I don't know what Stephen would have done at that moment. I'm sure it was quiet in the house. I, I firmly believe that Stephen's hope in this message was for another spiritual Pentecost, another moment in which these rulers would get it, that God would unstop their ears, soften their hearts, and that there would have been revival in the council. Stephen says it so that they hear truth, believing that God can deliver truth and change hearts. He was hoping that the Spirit of God was going to swoop down, cause repentance in the hearts of the council, that they would see their sin and seek God for forgiveness, that they would embrace Christ, and that they would physically embrace Stephen. There would be reconciliation and a revival, a party going on that day. That's what Stephen hoped for. know what Stephen got. So hear it. Stephen had his way. But it wasn't God's way. And yet, Stephen continued to obey. You see, in this text, we see not only the message of Stephen, but we see in these last verses the example of Stephen. Stephen was one of those guys who practiced what he preached. Stephen was hoping for revival. This is what Stephen got. Now, when they heard these things, being the council, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. (laughs) That's mad, man. My four-year-old granddaughter, when she gets mad, her chin jets out. And you can just, you could see it from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. I, I'm thinking the council like, they can't hold back their anger. Chalk from their teeth is coming flying out their mouth, right? They are mad. But Stephen, get it? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I think we've sung something like that today. What? Turn your eyes into Jesus. Look full on His wonderful face and the fullness of Him surrounds you. His glory and His grace. And Stephen says, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. (laughs) And it only makes the council angrier. It says in verse 7, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. La, 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 la. Rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Hear the story. Stephen finishes the sermon. And when his truth is not received but rejected, he is physically attacked. 
But Stephen's attention is not on his attackers. But full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven. How do people who are being persecuted endure? That's a question from the beginning. How do we stand strong when God's way doesn't appear to be our way? Stephen gives us a clue. We fix our eyes upon Jesus. Who the author of Hebrews says is the author of our faith. He's the one who has given us our faith. And he is the one who will finish us in our faith. Fix yours. When your way is not God's way, in order to obey, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. The persecution rises to a fever pitch. The scene is beyond our comprehension. And yet we hear the voice of Stephen as it even echoes the voice of Jesus. Lord, receive my spirit. The very words of Christ as he died. And do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do those words even make a difference? (laughs) Probably more than we know. But let's look close at this scenario again and see the impact that even those words might have had on this guy named Saul. Soon to be the apostle Paul. Well, we mentioned last week that Saul might have been present at the trial might have been even in the very debate with Stephen about the things of Jesus. In these verses, we know that he is present at the killing of Stephen. It appears that he might even be the one who has ordered it. But let me tell you who wasn't at the stoning of Stephen. An important thought this morning. Luke wasn't at the stoning of Stephen. So how did he get this information? How did he get this first-hand account of what happened to Stephen? Let me remind you, Luke traveled a lot with this guy named Paul, who was once Saul, who was the one who was here ordering Stephen's death. Ah, I love this scenario! Right? In Luke's living room. So, Paul, tell me, tell me how that happened again. Oh, my gosh, you won't believe it. I'm so embarrassed to tell you what I did. But let me tell you what Stephen did. Let me tell you even more what Stephen said. When he was dying, Luke, when I stood holding the cloaks of those who stoned him, when he was dying, he looked at me and he said, I forgive you. I can't help but think that something happened in that moment that began to change the life of Saul. That when he was met by Jesus on that road to Damascus, he was ready (laughs) to know a Lord who forgave like Stephen forgave him. Did those words mean anything? Did they make a difference? Oh, they made all the difference in the world. How do we stand strong when God's way doesn't appear to be our way? First, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, we trust that God is in charge of everything. 
And even when things don't make sense to us, we trust that it is always a part of a plan that we cannot see, a plan that is always best. So even when God's ways are not our ways, we are empowered to obey. This is how the persecuted people of God withstand the torture that they experience. And quite frankly, it is how the gospel continues to be told around the world. Testimony of those whose lives are surrendered to their God. But ladies and gentlemen, as we come to this table, it provides for us a hard question. Because it's one thing to have the preacher preach it. It's another thing to live it. Here's the hard question. Will we trust God's ways when they don't line up with our ways? I've been humbled this week as I've read story after story of people from Nigeria who live in thrown-together huts as they flee the persecution of the Muslim tyrannical movement of Boko Haram. To the people who are imprisoned and fear death in North Korea as a result of the leadership of Kim Jong-un because of their faith in Jesus. And as I listen to Stephen, I have to ask whether I am more like Abraham, Joseph, and Moses who live in obedience, or am I more like the stiff-necked council who refuse to give up my traditions to follow God's way over my own? It's a big question this morning. As, have we as God's people surrendered to His way even when it's not our way. There's an applicable landing point for this thought this morning, which we'll briefly jump on and then run like crazy from. You ready? I know this to be true. Whenever in the next 130 days we know a result of this election, I know something to be true. Some of you will be disappointed. Listen, that's not a prediction. That's not a side for one candidate or the other. I'm just stating the truth. There's two guys running, and one guy's going to get it, and one guy's not. And the other people for the one guy who doesn't get it are going to be disappointed. I, I fear this election has become a distraction. And maybe this morning is a good time to once again turn our eyes to Jesus, not for the election, listen, of our candidate. <laughs> oh God, please help win the election. But our prayers might be fixed on Jesus. Our eyes might be fixed on Jesus so that we might be prepared to live in God's way, not ours. Because listen, He's in control of this thing. There are amazing people of God supporting both sides of this election and for good reasons. But Biden and Trump will not both win. But God will. And listen, are we ready to follow Jesus even when things don't go our way? Will we trust God's ways more than ours? 
Maybe this morning, now I'm running like crazy from that issue, right? Maybe this morning is a more personal question. Things have not gone the way you, we would like. This virus has caused so many ripples in our lives beyond just the threat of being sick. And it's hard to understand sometimes where God's ways are in the midst of it. Maybe hard to understand where God even is in the midst of it, but we do not see in the sermon and the example of Stephen that it is in these hard places that it becomes all the more obvious that it is the difficult things that will reveal God and cause us to be dependent on Him. That in the pushback of life, we find God's power. That in the conflict of our lives, we will find growth. It is not God's way. Is it not God's way of stripping us of our golden calves and showing us His glory? The question this morning, people of God, is will we trust God's ways more than ours? Will we learn from Stephen to fix our eyes on Jesus and to trust that God has everything in his hands? It's what brings us to this table, that through Stephen... We focus on Jesus and we believe that our eternity is in the hands of Jesus and He has made a way for us to heaven through His surrender to the hard things, even death on a cross. See, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, God, I've got my way, (laughs) but I surrender my way to Your ways. Not my will, but Yours be done. That took Him to the cross. Why? So that I, you, might be saved. And and we love to trust Him for this, right? This is an easy one. I, I love to trust Jesus for His death and for His resurrection. I love to trust Jesus knowing that belief in Him, says the Bible, gives me this guarantee that He has indeed called me out as He called Abraham out, as He called Joseph out, as He called Moses out, as He called Stephen out, that I would know that I am His and that I will spend eternity with Him. And we love that story. I'm surrendered to that story. But listen, we can't surrender to that story and not surrender to the rest of life. To know that His ways might not always be our ways. But His ways are best. This table is evidence of that. That we would cease requiring God to do it our way. And we would submit with joy to His way. Let's pray.